First Samuel chapter 11, and hopefully 12. Uh, 12 is just an account of Samuel's uh, farewell address, but we're going to draw some things out of there, hopefully. But uh, let's open a word of prayer. Father, we thank you for our time tonight and pray that you just bless our time in your word. And, and we pray that you would just uh, enable us to understand the words we read off the written uh, pages of Scripture and apply them to our lives. And we just uh, thank you for uh, this gathering. Just pray you bless our time together. And we thank you in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Amen. All right. So we're in First Samuel chapter 11. So remember, we've come out of the time of the judges where all the craziness was going on back then. And now here we're entering into the time where Israel was ruled by a king. They wanted a king. They cried out for a king. And so God, through Samuel, finally uh, said, okay, I'll give you a king. And we have Samuel as the spiritual leader, you might say, of Israel at this point. And last week we looked at how Saul was uh, anointed and appointed king of Israel. So the king is more of a military leader that Saul and Samuel is more of a spiritual leader. And generally, the, the spiritual leader always usurps military leader or the kingly leader. Uh, it's just the way it works. Even in Britain, you know, with the whole, was it the Magna Carta, I guess, said basically the king can't just go out and do whatever he wants. He's under the submission of God's word. Uh, so it's kind of a significant statement to make. But even here, it's the same thing, that the spiritual leader always has rank, pulls rank. And so last week, we looked at Saul's rise kind of to leadership in chapter 10, how he was proclaimed king and anointed king, first privately with Samuel, and then before everybody in verse 17, uh, they proclaimed him as as king of Israel and all the people were happy and we closed last week with the idea that uh, Samuel in verse 25 told the people the rights and duties of the kingship in other words how this is going to go down how is this going to work with a king now this is a brand new deal for them and uh, a lot of this is taken out of I think it's Deuteronomy 17 or 13 or 17 something like that where they prescribe what a king does and things like that. And so he wrote him in a book and he laid it up before the Lord. Then Samuel sent all the people away, each one to his own home. And so this was vital because Saul had never been king before. They'd never had a king before. So they needed to understand how this whole thing worked. And then at the end there, we saw where a couple, it says, worthless fellows said, how can this man save us? And they despised him and brought him no present, but he held his peace which would be a dangerous thing to do to a king. They could just lop your head off or have your head lopped off at a moment's notice. And so in, in chapter 11, it kind of talks about the, the leadership of Saul, how he was used by God spiritually, even though he wasn't really that, that spiritual of an individual himself. And um, it starts off here, with them, basically, with, with Saul recognizing that there's a need, that there's a peop, people here that need, need some help. And so in verse 1, it says, Then Nahash the Ammonite 
went up and besieged Jabesh-Gilead, and all the men of Jabesh said to Nahash, Make a treaty with us, and we will serve you. But Nahash the Ammonite said to them, On this condition I will make a treaty with you, that I gouge out all your right eyes, and thus bring disgrace on all of Israel. So you read that, and you're going, What in the world is going on here? Are we back in the days of the judges? You know, this is just kind of a bizarre thing. Well, if you, if you look back in the book of Judges, just a couple pages to the left, I think, it, yeah, it's chapter 19, it tells this unfortunate story, kind of a gruesome story, actually, of a Levite who was passing through a certain area. Someone invited him to the house because he had nowhere to stay. And while he was at this individual's house, the men of the city surrounded the house and demanded that the man who was housing the stranger bring the stranger out. You remember this story? And he said, no, don't do this. This is not right. They were obviously interested in probably homosexual activity or something like that. And he said, don't do this. You can have my virgin daughter. You can have his concubine, but don't harm my guest. In, in the Middle East, being a guest in somebody's home is a very big deal. And you would never want some, someone to harm someone who's a guest. And just with the society view of women and things like that back then, it was like, yeah, give them the women, which in our society is like, that. in any society should be wrong. But they, that's how they appeased him. Long story short, they kill the concubine who they take and uh, lay, him, lay her at the, they find her at the doorstep the next morning. And the guy whose concubine it was took her home, cut her up, she was dead, into pieces and sent all the pieces out to the tribes of Israel saying, this is what they did, who, who is going to help me hunt these people down and uh, bring them to justice? Well, what happened was all the tribes responded <laughs> except, guess who? Jabesh Gilead. They didn't send anybody to help. And this is the tribe of Benjamin. Remember, they're the smallest tribe. Well, this is the reason why they're the smallest tribe. And so they not only didn't help track down the perpetrators, but they actually were helping them escape justice. (laughs) So they were in cahoots with the perpetrators of this crime. Well, when everybody found out, hey, where's, where's Jabesh Gilead? They didn't show up. When the whole thing was over, they said, you know what, we need to avenge Jabath Gilead. And they traveled to that tribe and killed all but about, I think it's four to six hundred people, men. And so it was, it was kind of a, a crazy story. And so now you have this tribe who's basically left defenseless because they, they hardly have anybody in their number, right? And so as a result, the Ammonites who are looking to get revenge on the attack from all the other tribes of Israel, because that was the people from whom these people came from, who they, uh, they uh, attacked. Basically what happens is they said, hey, let's pick on the small guys. So what they do, they went out to Jabesh Gilead, and they were going to a- attack them. And so these people being the people that they were, they said, well, let's, let's make a treaty with us. We'll serve you. And that seems 
rational, right? If somebody's going to overthrow your country, and you see that going on even now with North Korea and stuff, I think they're kind of finally figuring out, well, this isn't a good deal. Maybe we should try to negotiate. So same thing was going on here. But Nahash, who was this leader who his word, his name means snake, so I mean, I wouldn't trust him, okay? He says, okay, you know what? You want to make a treaty with me? What that means is they want to pay him taxes. That's how you would work this out. They would say, you know what? You owe us so much so that we don't attack you and gouge out all your eyes. That's how it would work. So Jabesh Gilead's probably, they're probably feeling pretty good about this point. Oh, they're going to negotiate with us. No problem. We'll just pay them money and they'll, they'll go away. He said, on, the, on this condition, I'll make a treaty with you that I gouge out all your right eyes and thus bring disgrace on all of Israel. And that brings to light his motivation, right? His motivation wasn't money. He didn't care whether they paid him anything. He wanted to disgrace Israel. And the only way he could do that was pick on the smallest tribe who had the least amount of people who was very vulnerable at the time. And so this is Saul's first opportunity as king, right, to to act and to do something. And so this is the, and he does well as we read through the story here, uh, but he, he first recognized that these people needed, needed help. And some of the verses there that I listed are just ways in which, even in the New Testament, the Lord recognizes people who need help. And that should be also exemplified in our own lives as well as we emulate Christ. So, you know, you have to recognize that people are in need of help. Well, that's what Saul does here. And look at what happens. It says, uh, they say, you know what, here's the deal. We'll make a treaty with you. We're going to gouge out all your right eyes. It doesn't sound much like a treaty, but uh, the elders of Jabath said to him, which is rather smart, you know what, why don't you give us seven days to think on that? <laughs> give us seven days' respite that we may send messengers through all the territory of Israel. Then, if there's no one to save us, we will give ourselves up to you. And Nahash, probably being a wise individual, a snake that he was, figured, you know what, nobody's going to help these people. They didn't show up for anybody when everybody else needed help. Why would anybody help them? So, yeah, go ahead. I'll give you seven days, no problem. So that's what he did. In verse 4, it says, When the messengers came to Gibeah of Saul, they reported the matter in the ears of the people, and all the people wept aloud. So here the messengers are coming, and they're saying, Oh, man, you know, Jabesh Gilead is going to get all their eyes poked out, basically. It's not a good situation. They reported the matter uh, in the ears of all the people, and all the people wept aloud. And now here's Saul. Look at, here he comes on the scene here. Verse 5, Saul was coming from the field behind the oxen, which is kind of interesting because he kind of blew it with the donkeys, right? He lost the donkeys. He couldn't find the donkeys. So maybe he got demoted to watching the oxen. I don't know. Maybe they don't move as fast or something. But whatever, he was behind the oxen. And Saul said, <coughs> uh, what is wrong with the people? Why are they weeping? Now remember, he knows he's king, right? He's been anointed twice, once privately, once publicly. But he doesn't seem to be taking his kingship very seriously, does he? Because he's out playing with the oxen. 
So he just went back to normal, and then he comes out, and all these people are weeping. He's like, what's going on here? What's wrong with all these people? So they told him the news of the men of Jabesh, and the spirit of God rushed upon Saul when he heard these words, and his anger was greatly kindled. So the second thing here in verses 4 and 5, you see that, you know what, he was willing to get involved. He could have just said, not my problem. Right? I mean, as a king, you probably wouldn't want to do that, but he could have done that. He's king. Nobody's going to oppose that. But he didn't. He was willing to get involved. And then he also here, not so much relied, I I put, they they rely on the Holy Spirit. I'm talking about spiritual leaders. But Saul, it, it says the Spirit came upon him in such a way that his anger was greatly kindled. He got really, 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 really ticked off. It says, verse 7, he took a yoke of oxen. Now remember, he's gone through this whole experience before with the judges and everything. So now he's hearing this and all this is coming back. You know, how dare these people do this? Uh, these are our people, even though they didn't show up for us. We, I got to rally some, some men out to fight against these people. But how am I going to do that? Because nobody would want to, right? Because they never showed up before when they were called upon. So why would we come to their aid? But he does, and he does it rather interestingly. In verse 7, he says, He took a yoke of oxen, and he cut them into pieces. <laughs> and he sent them throughout all the territory of Israel by the hand of the messenger, saying, Whoever does not come out after Saul, and then he throws Samuel in there for good measure. You know, he just kind of puts him in there. So shall it be done to his oxen. In other words, you see this head of an oxen? This is going to be all your oxen if you don't come out and help fight. And remember, livestock back then was a very valuable thing to have and own. And so it was kind of important that they deal with this. And so the, the big tension here, if you, if you don't know how it ends, is, well, are they going to show up? Do these people show up? So he, he relies on the, the spirit of the Lord here. And, you know, a couple, I think a couple things to, to draw out even more importantly is that from a from a spiritual standpoint as believers the one thing you see in this story from the closing of chapter 10 where Samuel gives him this book the rights and duties of the kingship all right from a spiritual leader so basically he's giving him hey this is the word of god uh, you need to understand this all the way from Samuel listening to the word of the lord what you see is that they're constantly putting themselves in submission to god's word they're putting themselves in submission to God's word. And that's one thing when you're talking to anybody about spiritual issues, when you're talking to, it doesn't matter whether they're secular people, they're spiritual, you're Christians, whatever. Um, you use this a lot in, in biblical counseling. Okay, somebody comes to you with a problem, the first thing you want to establish with them is what? The authority of God's word. Because if they don't believe in the authority of God's word, I, I, I can't help you. I literally cannot help you. Because everything I'm going to tell you is from this book. And if you don't believe this book, if you don't have any faith in this book, if you don't even want to try it out, you know, go somewhere else. Because you have to be under the submission of God's word or you're never going to make any headway at all. And that's what you see here. And then also, secondly, you can see where Saul was literally transformed. We saw this last week as well. He's made into a new man. God gave him a new heart, that whole thing, by the Holy Spirit. And spiritually for us, we can we can understand that as believers in Christ. Because we all come from a variety of backgrounds. Maybe it was a good 
good childhood, maybe it was a bad childhood, maybe you've had good relationships, maybe you've had bad relationships, maybe people have taken advantage of you, who knows? All these things are in our background. And so when we come to Christ, we not only have to put all those things in submission to God's word, but we also have to expect God to change us, to transform us. And so many times Christians want to live in their past. They want to live in their childhood. Well, why did my dad treat me this way? Why? Well, who knows why? I don't know. I mean, you can go back and psycho- psychoanalyze anything. But is it going to do you any good? I'm not saying you don't do that sometimes, but I'm just saying for the most part, you don't want to stay there because God has changed you into a new person, right? And in Christ, you're a new creature in Christ. And so it's important that you kind of pull those, those, we pull those principles out of there as well. So he relied on the, on the, the Holy Spirit, and he was one that was willing to get involved, recognize that they needed help, and with, even, even though these people didn't deserve it, okay, this Jabesh Gilead, they didn't deserve the help of anybody. They didn't help anybody else. Logically, we could look at that and go, hey, you know what? That's not a, something that you would do. Just normally, you would say, no, I'm not going to help you. You're never there for me. But that's not the way of Christ, is it? Christ says to love others more than ourselves. So he agrees, Nahash agrees to this uh, proposal. Saul hears about it. He cuts up all these oxen, which is basically his, his way of rallying all these people to action, even though sometimes it's hard to do that. And so he was kind of creative in the way he did it. He remembered what they did with the, the concubine before, and that kind of, you know, that worked for the most part. So maybe he can get, even if he can get, you know, several of the tribes out, maybe they can help these people out. So whoever doesn't do this is going to, their oxen is going to be cut up too. And then it says this in verse 7, Then the dread of the Lord fell upon the people, and they came out as one man. And when he mustered them at Bezak, the people of Israel were 300,000, and the men of Judah 30,000. A lot of people say, well, why do they separate the men of Judah from Israel? Well, this was probably written after the, the kingdom was divided. probably happened when it was one, but when it was written, it happened uh, that it was divided. So it just subdivided it that way. So they had 330,000 uh, men, and... He, he really, in the first part of verse 9 here, you see where he is willing to uh, choose faith over fear. It says, And they said to the messengers who had come, Thus shall you say to the men of Jabath-Gilead, Tomorrow by this time the sun is hot, you shall have salvation. Now, there was nothing, you know, in their <laughs> DNA that definitely uh, would secure this just supernaturally or whatever, I mean, just on their own, it had to have something to do with, with the Lord. And so they were really choosing uh, faith over fear. They could have said, hey, no way, we're not going to do this. These people are not, you know, this guy's a snake. They've come for battle. They're ready. We're just responding to their, their threats. So they're ready to go. Uh, we're not really ready for this. But by faith, they said, by the, by the time the sun is hot, you shall have salvation. So just kind of settle down, remember you know, whose who's side you're on, and, and this will work out. 
And he encouraged the people with the promises. Therefore the men of Jabesh said, Tomorrow we will give ourselves up to you, and you may do what, to us whatever seems good to you. So they go back to Nahash and they say, Okay, just so you know, tomorrow is the day. We're going to give ourselves up to you and you can do whatever you want. Kind of meet us here. And it was a setup. But Nahash, even though he was privy to battle schemes and things like that, he, he kind of maybe got overconfident. Thought, ah, this is going to be a, a wash, man. We're going to poke all these guys' out, eyes out. They won't be good for anything when we're done with them. And so he said, all right. And when the messengers came and told the men of Jabeth, they were glad. Well, why were they glad? They were glad because they weren't going to get their eyes poked out. <laughs> okay, I mean, that's, you know, and the, the significance, I think, of having your right eye versus somebody asked me, why would they poke out the right eye versus the left eye? Well, a lot of times back then you would cover your face with the shield and you would, you would use your right eye to aim, whether it's a bow or whether it's a sword, whatever. And so by poking out your right eye really would eliminate a lot of peripheral vision. It would limit your effectiveness, obviously, in any kind of battle. And so it's not a, a good thing anyway to have your eye poked out or gouged out, as they said. So it was something that they were encouraged with. They were glad they weren't going to get their eyes poked out. Well, verse 11 kind of shows us a little bit of the planning. It says, In the next day, Saul put people in three companies. What is this about? Well, it's just strategic. Okay, you wouldn't want to put all your men in one area and have them get surrounded, right, and all get wiped out. You'd want to break them up into different into different. Uh, areas and that's exactly what they did here they he was strategic in his planning and and that's where his kingly duties are really being fulfilled right militarily he's doing a pretty good job here he's getting the people ready for this battle he gets them all involved pretty soon they're 330,000 strong Uh, he gets them to have a little faith in what's going to going to happen And then he encourages them with God's promise. You know, the one thing that that faith always does, faith faith always leads people or us, it always leads us to action. Faith always leads us to action. Fear leads us to what? Inaction. What happens when you're scared? You get paralyzed, right? You ever been paralyzed with fear? You just... I remember one time I was coming out to the car, I just moved here and I, you know, on Jetter, and I was coming out to the car that was parked on, on Jetter, and I had, a, I had a briefcase, and I was walking across the yard, and all of a sudden, these three raccoons stood up on their hind feet and just ah, hissed at me, and I was like, ah! I mean, I dropped the, I, I couldn't move, I was just like, what is going on, is this a joke, what are these creatures, you know, really scared me, and, and that's what happens when you're fearful, you're paralyzed, but here, you see this, this faith leading to action. And so he, he encourages them simply by promising them, hey, this is going to work. And, and when he says here that tomorrow that we're going to surrender in verse 10, he says, therefore the men of Jabez said, tomorrow we will give ourselves up to you. Uh, we will surrender. Uh, it really, what they were really saying is that's when we're going to march to victory right over you folks. All right. Uh, but they weren't obviously going to show their hand. So in verse 
11, Saul begins to plan. He puts these people, these, the groups in three companies, and they came into the midst of the camp in the morning watch, early, early in the morning. All right, this is between 2 and 6 a.m. Usually that's when military people like to strike, if they're going to strike, right? Why? Because most people are sleeping, All right? You look at raids like the Osama bin Laden raid. It was late at night. Why? It's quiet. You can sneak in there get done what you need to get done and if you're just waking up or something like that then you know you're not as sharp as if you've been up all day so he led this surprise attack before dawn which basically resulted in this crushing uh, victory it says it says they came into the midst of the camp in the morning watch and struck down the ammonites until the heat of the day so they they basically just slaughtered them and those who survived were scattered so that no two of them were left together. So that's a lot, all right? And, and so when you stop and you think about that, they literally just totally disseminated this whole group of the enemy. Killed most of them. The rest of them were just scattered all over the place. And then in verse 12, you see where, where Saul begins to bring the people back together. And there's kind of a, you know, a, a method to this process you know you, you got to first care about the people's needs you take action to help the people and then you rally to bring the people together so in verse 12 it says and the people said to samuel who is that who is it that said shall saul reign over us remember back in the previous chapter at the end when they said oh this king we're not going to give him a gift who's he to he, he's not going to be a good king for us it says that saul what held his peace he could have lopped their heads off, but he held his peace. And so here, once again, you see him keeping the, the, the people's focus, really, on what's important. It says, and the people said to Samuel, who is it that said, shall Saul reign over us? Bring the men that we may put them to death. <laughs> In other words, we don't need these kind of people to be part of our group. Uh, if they're not going to be for us, they're against us, so let's just get rid of them. And Saul was able to really refocus the people's attention. And he says in verse uh, 13, Saul said, not a man shall be put to death this day. So he took a stand. He took a stand basically, first of all, realizing that, you know what, it's a good thing to not just take out venge, venge, be revengeful of people. God can take care of that. And he could have very easily said, yeah, go get those guys. We'll show them a thing or two. But he didn't do that. He was willing to set that aside. He was willing really to forgive the people. That's really what it was, is an act of forgiveness. And, and one thing I think as believers that we fail sometimes to understand is when we are slighted in some way or we're uh, offended in some way you know we're quick to call people out to that when sometimes maybe the the best thing is is just to forgive them just forgive them i mean that's what christ has done for us doesn't mean you don't have a conversation with them about it but do so in a forgiving way Uh, but so many times as these people we want our pound of flesh don't we we want revenge it's that's never a good way to go uh, God always says, you know what, I'll, I'll take care of that. Don't you worry about it. And so he, he says, 
Not a man shall be put to death this day, for today the Lord has worked salvation in Israel. In other words, folks, you're focusing on the wrong thing. He gets them refocused on the blessing of God's protective hand over them. And so, a lot of times, that's what exactly what we need. So many times when you talk to people who are going through hard times, they're so focused on their problems, they, they can't see you know, the forest through the trees. And it takes time sometimes to refocus them back on the Lord. Wait a minute. You know, you're a believer. God's going to protect you through this. Don't, you know, you don't need to be fearful. You need to have faith that, that God is going to watch out over you. And there's a way to, to kind of rally people back and, and refocus their attention on the Lord. And then the last thing there is they earn the respect and support of the people. Spiritual leaders do. It says in verse 14, Then Samuel said to the people, "Go, Let us go to Gilgal, and there renew the kingdom. In other words, we're going to do this whole thing over again. You're going to anoint me king again, uh, kind of proclaim me king again for a third time. Uh, yeah, hopefully third time's a charm. Unfortunately, it doesn't end that way. But, and there renew the kingdom. So all the people went to Gilgal, and there they made Saul king before the Lord in Gilgal. And this speaks of, of really a, a inner respect that the people had for Saul at this point that they didn't have for him before. And that's the way it is in any job, right? If you're the new person on the, on the, the job and you, know, you don't have the respect of your, your, your co-workers yet because they don't know you. They don't know your work ethic. They don't know anything about you. But as you work with them, the longer you work with them and you begin to show them some work ethic and the way you do things and you're productive and things, you begin to earn their respect. Well, that's basically what happened with Saul. And I think it happened on both sides. It happened on the people's sides. They had a different view of Saul after this whole thing. But I think also Saul <laughs> had a different view of his kingly duties because so many things came to pass you know, just from all the, the prophecies that Samuel said, this is going to happen, this is going to happen. So finally, he kind of wakes up and realizes, wow, this is actually going down the way God said it would. I mean, remember, this guy was hiding in the baggage last week. Remember, he didn't even want to go to the anointing of the king. He was, he was willing to hide, it says, in, in the baggage, and they had to go and, and pull him out of there in, in chapter 10 and say, hey, oh, here he is. They couldn't find the king. They're having this big ceremony, and the king's not there. And there he was back because he didn't want the attention. He probably didn't want the, want the, the role of, of having to do all this. But you see here that, that he was successful in all that. And it says, There they sacrificed peace offerings before the Lord, and there Saul and all the men of Israel rejoiced greatly. It's unfortunate that their joy won't last very long. Because the tide turns rather quickly in the coming chapters. So that's how chapter 11 ends. And then it, it, it opens up with chapter 12. Basically, chapter 12 is Samuel's saying, you know what? I'm done. I'm out of here. I'm gone. Goodbye. Remember, every time there was a time where the Lord told Samuel, okay, you need to anoint Saul. He did, he did it, what? Begrudgingly. Like, he knew it wasn't going to be a good deal, but that's what God had ordered. And so he was in, as we talked about, submission to God's word and said, okay, I'll do this. But it seems every time there, one of these things goes down with Saul, 
that Samuel has to address the people. He just can't go through the anointing thing and, you know, proclaim him king or whatever. He's got to tell the people, are you sure? Do you know what you're getting yourselves into? And that's kind of what he does here. It's kind of his, his last hurrah. He kind of says, all right, you know what? I'm done here. Uh, they fired him before, remember? They wanted a king. Get, Samuel, we don't want you anymore. Well, now he's at a point where he's saying, you know what? You're not going to fire me. I quit. And so it says in verse 1 of chapter 12, And Samuel said to all Israel, Behold, I have obeyed your voice in all that you have said to me, and have made a king over you. Now remember, he's talking to all the people. And now behold, the king walks before you. You can almost hear just the language that he's using. Okay, you wanted a king? Well, here's your king. And then he goes on, he says, And I am old and gray. And behold, my sons are with you. I have walked before you from my youth until this day. Verse 3, here I am, testify against me before the Lord and before his anointed. In other words, before Saul. So he's basically saying, here I am, take a good look. If there's anything you got against me, let's bring it up now. So he starts rattling stuff off. Whose oxes have I taken? Answer, no, nobody. Or whose donkey have I, t- have I taken? Maybe they thought he stole the donkeys, I don't know, that are missing. None is the answer. Whom have I defrauded? Whom have I oppressed? Or from whose hand have I taken a bribe to blind my eyes with it? Or bribe to blind my eyes with it? Testify against me, and I will restore it to you. What's he doing? He's basically accounting for his leadership spiritually. He's standing before these people and he's saying, hey, look, I'm done. I'm getting out of here. You know what? If there's anything I've done to offend you, tell me now. And he knows in his heart he hasn't done anything. He was actually a pretty good leader, spiritually. He did. He obeyed God's word. He told the people what he had to tell them, even the hard things. He even did things against his own self-will. He probably didn't want Saul to be king, but he did it anyway because that's what God told him to do. And remember, he doesn't have all the pieces to the puzzle, even as their spiritual leader. It's not like God laid out this big map plan for Samuel and said, okay, now here's what you're going to do. You're going to anoint Saul, and we know that's not a good choice, but you know what? Down the road, here's what's going to come out of that. He didn't do that. So Samuel didn't have all the information, just like a lot of times in our own lives, right? We don't have all the information. And God's calling us to do something, and it doesn't make any sense, and we're going, wait a minute. And we have to what? We have to trust God. And he's done that. And he said, basically, if I've done any of these things, Saul is, is, the, is the witness here. Uh, the Lord is, is witness against you, and his anointed is witness this day that you have found nothing in my hand. In other words, I came to you with my hands empty, I leave with my hands empty. And they said, he is witness. They agreed. And then you can kind of, sense that Samuel's getting a little more into this speech he's giving them in verse 6. It says, And Samuel said to the people, The Lord is witness. Who appointed Moses and Aaron and brought your fathers up out of the land of Egypt? So what's he doing? He's recounting to them. He's beginning to recount to them the faithfulness of the God that they just rejected. Because that's what they did in wanting a king. They rejected God as their king. 
And he's going, yeah, this is not going to end well, but okay, just remember, this is the God who brought Moses and Aaron, brought your fathers up out of the land of Egypt. Verse 7, now therefore stand still that I may plead with you before the Lord concerning all the righteous deeds of the Lord that he performed for you and for your fathers. In other words, you know what? You're just going to sit there. It's kind of like at a, at a retirement party or even sometimes at a, at a wedding, you know, the, the, somebody gets up to make a, hose or a toast and they start talking. And the longer they talk, you just start to cringe, but you can't just say, shut up, right? So they got, the, they got a captive audience. And so they're just going on and on and on. And he, that's what he's doing here. He's just kind of un, unloading his heart. And so he says, Now therefore stand still that I may plead with you before the Lord concerning all the righteous deeds of the Lord that he performed with you before you and for your fathers. When Jacob went into Egypt and the Egyptians oppressed him, then your father cried out to the Lord, and the Lord sent Moses and Aaron, who brought your fathers out of Egypt and made them dwell in this place. But they forgot the Lord their God, and he sold them into the hand of Sisera, commander of the army of Hazor, and in the land, hand of the Philistines, and into the hand of the king of Moab. And they fought against them, and they cried out to the Lord, and said, verse 10, We have sinned, because we have forsaken the Lord, and have served the, the Baals and Ashtaroth. But now deliver us out of the hand of our enemies, that we may serve you. These are the people crying out to God. They're, they're repenting, is what they're doing. And the Lord uh, sent Jerubbabel and Barak and, and Jephthah and Samuel and delivered you out of the hand of your enemies on every side and you lived in safety. He's recounting to them the faithfulness of the God that they just rejected. And when you saw that Nahash, the king of the Ammonites, bringing it right up to just a couple minutes ago, came against you, you said to me, No, but a king shall reign over us when the Lord your God was your king. Verse 13, And now behold, the king whom you have chosen, for whom you have asked, behold, the Lord has set a king over you. And here is the conditions. He says in verse 14, If you fear the Lord and serve him and obey his voice and not rebel against the commandment of the Lord, and if both you and the king who reigns over you will follow the Lord your God, it will be well. So all of a sudden, you can see, it's kind of, in a way, it's kind of like a marriage. When you're single, who do you have to worry about? Yourself. That's it. You don't have to worry about anything else. Pretty much yourself. But when you get married, all of a sudden, there's a greater concern. (laughs) Okay? And so it's the same thing here. Israel had God as their king. Well, now they they want a physical king here on earth with them, all of a sudden they're linking arms with somebody else. So now they have something else to worry about. It's not just their behavior, but it's the behavior of their king that may affect them. And that's what comes into play here. And so he, he goes on here, and you know that, that, that part right there, if you will fear the Lord and serve him and obey his voice and not rebel against the commandment of the Lord, if both of you and the king who reigns over you will follow the Lord your God, it will be well. That applies right to us as believers. It's a very simple prescription. If you want to have a successful Christian life, if you want to have a a life where you're growing spiritually, things like that, fear the Lord, serve him, obey his voice, don't rebel. (laughs) And just do the right thing. Uh, And you'll be fine. God will take care of you. Everything will will go down uh, very well. 
And then he goes on here and he says, uh, verse 16, Now therefore stand still and see this great thing that the Lord will do before your eyes. Uh, Verse 15, I'm sorry. But if you will not obey the voice of the Lord, but rebel against the commandment of the Lord, then the hand of the Lord will be against you and your king. And so then he says this. He says, stand still, and I'm going to help you out here with an illustration. He's telling the people this. And he says, you know what, just to let you know that my words have power, that I'm a spiritual leader here, uh, is it not the wheat harvest? In other words, isn't it June, July, whenever the wheat harvest was, the middle of the summer, not a lot of rain, everything's dry? Isn't that the time we're talking about right here? That's what he says. And he says, I will call upon the Lord that he may send thunder and rain, and you shall know and see that your wickedness is great which you have done in the sight of the Lord in asking for yourselves a king. So what does he do? He calls upon the Lord. Verse 18, so the Samuel called upon the Lord, and the Lord sent thunder and rain. That's kind of the, that would be similar to, you know, it's 4th of July in Orlando, Florida, and there's three inches of snow on the, on the freeway. It snows for three inches. You know, that would just be bizarre, right? Well, that's, that's kind of the equivalent here. It's raining in the harvest. It just would never happen because it's a very arid area over there. But it did. And it was proof that Samuel was speaking on behalf of the Lord. And so in verse 18, it says, So Samuel called upon the Lord, and it, 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 the Lord sent thunder and rain that day. And all the people, look at the response, greatly feared the Lord and Samuel. <laughs> So all of a sudden, they found a kind of renewed respect for this old gray-haired prophet that they thought, ah, we don't need this guy anymore because now we've got a king. And that just, unfortunately, wasn't the case. Verse 19, And all the people said to Samuel, Pray for your servants to the Lord your God that we may not die. For we have added to all of our sin this evil to ask for ourselves a king. So they finally get it. Through all this miraculous thunder and rain and in the middle of the summer, they finally realize, wow, God opened their eyes and they realize, boy, this is not good what we've done. We've sinned before our God. And I think Samuel perceived that they were remorseful. This wasn't just words off their lips. I think they, were, they, were, they literally meant that they were re- repenting here. They had a change of heart. And so in verse 20, Samuel said to the people, do not be afraid. That's such a wonderful phrase when you're caught up in sin, isn't it? I mean, the idea that, you know what, okay, yeah, you, you messed up. Maybe you messed up really, really big. Maybe there's consequences that are going to follow you the rest of your life for this, this sin that you, 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 but you know what, don't be afraid. If you're willing to repent, if you're willing to go to God and say, hey, I blew it, God is, is always there. To forgive. That's why we're told in the New Testament to confess our sins. Because they are forgiven. If we trusted in Christ, obviously. Do not be afraid. You have done all, done all this evil. So he doesn't, notice he doesn't say, do not be afraid. It'll be alright. Don't worry about it. It's no big deal. You know, God's love. No. He, he calls him out on it. He says, you've done all this evil. He, he kind of doubles down on their confession. 
Yet, he says, do not turn aside from following the Lord, but serve the Lord with all your heart. See, that's a a transition that a lot of people never make. In other words, they get to the point maybe where they're caught in their sin because they realize there's going to be consequences for their sin. And so they kind of have a fleshly remorse. They're maybe embarrassed, whatever it might be. But they don't really have a change of heart. And what Samuel's laying down here is, you know what? You don't need to be fearful. Just admit you've done all this stuff. But don't turn aside from serving the Lord. So many times, even believers, when they, when they fall into a sin and they're caught, okay, it, it's hard to get back to the point where you're serving the Lord. Because we just like to beat ourselves up. We, we make ourselves unworthy. We feel like we're unworthy, and we're unworthy anyway. Because we all sin in a myriad of ways, probably. And so he says here, don't, you know, don't be afraid. Yeah, you've done this. It's going to have some consequences, but don't turn aside from following the Lord, but serve the Lord with all your heart. And you know what? That's what's so true. When you see somebody who's been forgiven for a lot, I mean, people that have had train wrecks for for lives, I mean, just horrible things, horrible crimes they did or whatever, and God's got a hold of them, and God genuinely saved them, it's like they can't stop serving the Lord. I mean, they just go crazy, you know, really serving the Lord, giving their whole heart because they realize what they did, and they, they realize the grace of God in their life. It's not, a, it's not a matter of trying to make up for all the bad you've done. You can't look at it that way, because that's just works religion. But it's you're, you're, you're performing works that God has, has prepared for us beforehand to walk in. And as we do that, it's, it's really a, a light to other people that, wow, God has made a change in this individual. This person is not the same person. So circle over with all your heart. In verse 21, he says, And do not turn aside after empty things that cannot profit or deliver, for they are empty. For the Lord, look at this, will not forsake his people. For his great name's sake, because it has pleased the Lord to make you a people for himself. That, that sentence is filled with so much. I mean, the Lord will not forsake his people, not because of them, but because of what? His name's sake. It's his name's sake that he is, will not forsake us. It, it has very little to do with us. That's like, you know, move that truth to the New Testament. When you come to Christ for salvation and he forgives you of your sin, that's why the Bible says there is no, what? Condemnation for those who are in Christ. Not even a little bit. Not a tad. doesn't matter. <laughs> okay? And so it's, it's very important that you, we realize that because that helps us get through those hard times. Because it pleased the Lord to make you a people for himself. And that is exactly what God has done for each and every one of us. If we know Christ, if we've come to Christ, he has made us a people for himself. To the point, even in the Bible, it says that he's done this even before the foundation of the world. It had very little to do with us. We weren't even around, which is hard to understand, but God transcends time. There's no yesterday, there's no today, there's no tomorrow with God. He sees everything is now. Verse 23, moreover, as for me, so he turns the 
kind of speech back on himself, far be it from me that I should sin against the Lord by ceasing to pray for you. So he just reams them out. <laughs> I mean, he literally just, you know, calls them to task for all this stuff, bad decisions, whatever. But then, as a spiritual leader that he is, he's willing to kind of get down on one knee and say, hey, you know what? I'm still going to be praying for you. Even though you really, really messed up. And you're going to bear some heavy consequences based on this decision. But you know what? I was obedient and I did what the Lord wanted me to do, but I cannot not pray for you because that would be sinful. And that's a good lesson for us, isn't it? When somebody lets us down or somebody ticks us off or whatever. I mean, so many times we just, what do we do? We just push them out of our lives never to see them again because we don't want the memories. We don't want any of that stuff. But God says it's actually sin that we would do something like that and cease to pray for people who maybe offended us or, or hurt us in some way. And it could be legitimate hurt. I'm not saying you're making, you know, it could be something you're totally innocent in the matter and someone does something to you that would just be horrible. But you know what? We're called as believers to forgive and to literally pray for people like that. He says, and I will instruct you in the good and the right way. In the end there, only fear the Lord and serve him faithfully with all your heart. There's that word again. For consider what great things he has done for you. And then he gets one last jab in there. But if you still do wickedly, you shall be swept away, both you and what? Your king. All right. A couple just spiritual insights into that chapter because it's kind of like one long tirade, so it was kind of hard to break it up. But I think in, in verse 20, remember I, I said you need to be in submission to God's word. You'd be transformed by the Holy Spirit. You need to be willing to forgive God's people. That's what all these things that uh, Saul has done here, and even Samuel. But then in verse 20, he, he basically dials down here in, in chapter 12 about being a follower of God. He says, do not be afraid. You have done this evil, yet do not turn aside from following the Lord. All right? And that's a very basic spiritual principle that you can draw out of this is that never stop following the Lord. Be a follower of God. And in the same verse, he talks about not only follow the Lord, but repent of your sin. Repent of your sin. Uh, turn away from your sin. Turn to the Savior. And the other principle, I think, that you can draw out of chapter 12 is that you have to think rightly about your past. Um, you know, He recounts, basically, all the faithfulness of God and then he says, okay, you messed up, that's fine. But what's he encourage him to do? He encourages him to move forward, right? To turn to the Lord and keep on going forward. Continue to serve the Lord with all your heart. You know, I mean, there are days I get up, I don't feel worthy to serve the Lord. I don't feel like serving the Lord. I don't want to serve the Lord. But that's what he called to do. <laughs> so you don't really have a choice in the matter. I mean, you do, but if you choose not to, you're, you're sinning. So it's kind of a, you know, it's an easy choice to make, but at the same time, sometimes it's hard because our feelings come into play. And, you know, maybe life has just worn us out. We got frustrated. Maybe whatever, who knows what's going on. But whatever it might be, God, through Samuel, is telling the people, it doesn't matter what the consequences are. It doesn't matter what your situation is. You know, you continue to follow the Lord and move forward serving him you know and that's 
that's indicative of someone who's following the Lord. If you're following the Lord, guess what? You're going to be serving the Lord. If you show me a Christian who's not serving the Lord, I could probably say more than likely they're not following the Lord. Okay? And that's just the way it works out. That's the way God has kind of revealed this through through his word. Not just here, but even in the New Testament through various teachings of Christ and everything else. 